Last time we spoke in some length about the plight and bitter defeat of the defenders of Hong Kong. They faced not only an overwhelming enemy, but one who would perform some of the most heinous war crimes, such as the massacre at St. Stephen's College. We also talked about the absolute disaster that was General Douglas MacArthur's initial defense plan for the Philippines. By not initiating War Plan Orange 3 appropriately or on time, MacArthur had put his forces in dire circumstances as they struggled to withdraw to the Bataan Peninsula. Lastly, we spoke about the heroic stand on Wake Island. The US defenders there thought the Navy was coming to save them, but they were wrong. Wake fell to the Japanese invaders, and soon, even more territory would fall to the Empire of the Rising Sun. We are now going to focus on the Philippines, Malaya, and the Chinese Front. This episode is the Battle of Kampar. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even begin, I just want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn more about the Second Sino-Japanese War? I recommend their episode on the defense of the Sihang Warehouse. Hell, I wrote the script. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many historical events, so go give them a look over at YouTube. And please, subscribe to Kings and Generals at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my own channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where you can find a few videos like my historic film review of The 800, which was based on the defense of the Sihang warehouse. Give it a look. It would mean a lot to me. China has been at war with Japan since 1937, and some could argue since 1931, but it certainly escalated in 1937, to say the least. Japan has a China problem. They've been bogged down for a very long time, what Japan so desperately wants is to overthrow Chiang Kai-shek's regime and establish their own puppet government under Wang Jingwei. But in order to overthrow Chiang Kai-shek, the Japanese have been trying to cut off his lines of supplies, something I keep referring to as closing up the leaks. Well, a major leak was Hong Kong, and now the Japanese have occupied it. What was left for the Allies to use to supply Chiang Kai-shek was now Burma, and soon the Japanese would strike out at this leak. The Chinese, however, were not going to just sit back idly and allow the Japanese to strangle their lifeline. It is also important to note, since Japan began their war on the West, all those Westerners living within China were now in jeopardy. Since the China War had kicked off in 1937, a lot of these foreigners were from neutral countries and thus held some protection. After December the 8th of 1941, all the Americans and British were rounded up and interned, however. The international settlement of Shanghai, which was for so long an oasis of neutrality in the midst of a war-torn city, was now under Japanese control. Thousands of Westerners were sent to holding camps. Many would not survive. When the war began against the West, Chiang Kai-shek would gain the very thing he craved for so long, a seat at the top table of global decision-making. China might be at last treated as an equal partner. Yet from the very earliest days, it was very clear the new allies were wary of another. Chiang Kai-shek knew this alliance was an opportunity to correct the wrongs that had been done to China over the past century, and not just by Japan, but by the very nations who were now coming to China's aid. Chiang Kai-shek was told quietly by the U.S. ambassador to FDR 
Hu Xi that the president asked that China should show sympathy but to not celebrate noisily about the new alliance. This was most likely FDR showing his nervousness about politics back home and how voters might not relish seeing over-jubilant crowds in Chongqing. Chiang Kai-shek would write in his diary of this, quote, The contempt that the Americans and British hold for us, even Roosevelt, can't get out of these old attitudes. Such a pity. End of quote. Now, although Roosevelt had disappointed Chiang Kai-shek, it was the other ally, that of Britain, who would bear the most criticism. Chiang Kai-shek wrote in his diary about them, quote, The British do not take us seriously. The next generation should understand the difficulty of building the country up from its past shame. End of quote. Thus, it was not just Japan that he considered to be the source of China's problems, and he had no intention of forgetting the long history of British imperialism in China. Chiang Kai-shek, only a week or so after Pearl Harbor, began to make a list of demands of Britain for China's participation in the war. He wanted the return of the Kowloon Peninsula in Hong Kong, the return of Tibet, the return of Outer Mongolia, Xinjiang from the USSR, and the recognition of Manchuria as Chinese sovereign territory. The British military attaché in Chongqing declared that the Chinese had, quote, reached a pitch of arrogance and conceit that is unbelievable. End of quote. To the Western powers, China looked like a battered nation on its knees, waiting for the Americans and British to save it from certain destruction at the hands of the colossal Japanese Empire. Yet from Chiang Kai-shek's viewpoint, China was the first and most consistent foe against the Axis. Despite numerous opportunities to withdraw from the war, China had fought on, alone and deserved now to be treated as an equal power. And truth be told, if China were to fall, over 600,000 Japanese troops held down by the nationalist and communist forces could now be redeployed to the Pacific theater. Therefore, for Western allies, it became adamantly clear to keep China in the war. As the new stage of the war kicked off, Chiang Kai-shek was unwilling to start any new major operations in the first few weeks. The Japanese were too focused on their operations in the Southwest Asia and Pacific, and would not embark on any major offensives within China, except for one exception. Back on December the 13th, Lieutenant General Anami Korichika returned to China after finishing his role as Vice Minister of War in the former cabinet of Prime Minister Kanoi. He also happened to be one of those guys who was part of the clique supporting the rise of Hideki Tojo, and he was made Commander-in-Chief of the IGA 11th Army in Central China by April of 1941. Now going way back to September and October of 1941, it was Anami who led the 11th Army into the Second Battle of Changsha against the NRA led by General Zhe Yu. That battle went quite brutal. Well, to be blunt, all the battles in the China War are quite horrific, but this one was particularly messy. This was also the second attempt at taking the major city of Changsha, which is the capital of Henan Province. Over 120,000 Japanese troops, supported by naval and air forces, clashed with 300,000 Chinese. The Japanese entered around September the 27th of 1941 after fighting Chinese guerrillas the entire approach to the city. The Japanese managed to infiltrate the north gate of Changsha, but the assault on the city turned into absolute mayhem. The battle turned into street fighting, giving the Chinese the advantage, and estimates range quite a lot, but there could have been something like 10,000 Japanese casualties before they even began retreating. The attack was an enormous failure, but Anami would return. So as I mentioned, back on December the 13th, Anami was furious about failing to take Changsha. And in fact, on top of that, the Chinese were gloating about how they beat his ass, 
So that really pissed him off more. So Anami and the 11th Army are ordered to mount a thrust to support the 23rd Army's attack against Hong Kong. Anami was supposed to maneuver his forces south of Hankou, but instead he disobeyed his orders and maneuvered his forces towards Changsha. Now Anami has a serious force to be reckoned with, over 120,000 troops in 27 infantry battalions, 600 pieces of artillery, and 200 aircraft. So the very pissed off Anami brought his forces down upon Changsha, reaching the region by December the 24th. His forces are seemingly cutting the Chinese guerrillas to pieces on the approach. It all seems very easy. So he now believes that General Zhu Yu must have inadequate defenses of the city. This might be a cakewalk, so to speak. So Anami decides he's going to capture the city by December the 27th, and then he sends the IGA 3rd, 6th, and 40th divisions to attack from the northeast of Changsha. As they cross the Liaoyang River, suddenly they are met with a three-division strong ambush of the NRA. Things go absolutely terrible there, and the forces are pushed back into the mountains east of the city. Inami is surprised, to say the least, but still fully commits to a full-on attack to capture the city. The next day, the Japanese begin breaking through the Chinese lines of defense and march on the city of Changsha. By December the 31st, the Japanese reached the southern eastern edge of the city and tried to breach its defenses, but failed to do so. So Anami has his artillery bombard the first lines of defense on the northern part of the city, absolutely crushing them. His forces march further in, but the second lines of defense hold them back, and on January the 1st, all of a sudden the Chinese launch a counterattack. The counterattack utilizes artillery, which absolutely devastates the Japanese, but by January the 4th, the Japanese still remained within the city. So, from the perspective of Anami, it seemed that he had achieved his objective, that of capturing Changsha. However, little did he know General Zhe Yu was holding back his forces intentionally and would soon attack the Japanese within the city where the Chinese would hold a great advantage in street fighting. I do apologize, but you're going to have to wait until next week to hear about the story of the Third Battle of Shangsha. Oh, and if you haven't already guessed, General Zhu Yu has set an enormous trap for Anami. Now we have to go back to the situation in the Philippines. General Douglas MacArthur began telling Washington as far back as December the 22nd that the Japanese force between 80 to 100,000 had landed at the Liangang Bay. A number more than double what the Japanese had actually landed. He himself told Washington that he had only 40,000 partially equipped troops, while in truth his forces outnumbered the Japanese on Luzon about 2 to 1. He also berated the Navy with criticisms, stating that they had failed. Basically, MacArthur was doing everything to provide misinformation and downplay his own failures. On December the 28th, the situation was not getting any better for the defenders of the Philippines. Warplan Orange 3 was initiated far too late, leading to the withdrawal to Bataan to be an absolute disaster. 75,000 troops, of which 15,000 are American and 60,000 are Filipino, alongside another 26,000 refugees, are trying to flee to Bataan from multiple points around Luzon. Oh, and for all the other Philippine islands aside from Luzon, where MacArthur had placed troops and vital war equipment, basically, all of that is just lost. Yes, a complete disaster. They all travel on roads in long, disorderly convoys of trucks, buses, jeeps, and ox carts. Horses and donkeys are enlisted to haul the artillery pieces and other heavy equipment. The army shares the roads with thousands of civilians all on foot. On Christmas Eve at San Fernando, the flow of civilians, troops, and vehicles out of the city moving southward is just pure chaos. People are scrambling to get out of the way of the advancing Japanese armies. Yet, for the most part, the Japanese seem to be surprised and caught off guard by the incredible amount of retreating. 
It seemed that Homa and his forces thought that the United States defense plan was to retreat to Manila and to hold on to it for as long as possible. It's ironically probably because of the bizarre defense plan that MacArthur enacted, it didn't really make sense. So for once during the entire campaign, Japanese aircraft did not seem to be abundantly in the air. Because honestly, just imagine if just a single fighter were to strafe any of these countless roads jam-packed with fleeing troops and civilians. It would have been pure carnage. But this did not happen, despite the fact the 40,000 Japanese troops have complete control over the air and sea of Luzon at this point. By December the 29th, the Japanese took the towns of Tarlac and Bongoban. Now on December the 30th, General Homa is beginning to realize what MacArthur's forces are actually doing. So he quickly sends the 7th Tank Regiment as a vanguard to quickly capture bridges and any road junctions leading to Bataan, before the fleeing troops and civilians can get across them. The 7th Tank Regiment is sent to the vital road junction at Plaridel, north of Manila, and the twin steel bridges of Calumpit over at the deep Papanga River to the north end of Manila Bay. The southern Luzon force needs to cross these to get to Bataan, and just a couple well-placed bombs on the bridges would cut off the entire southern Luzon force. Meanwhile, Wainwright's third line of defense is eventually broken, and the Japanese soon take the town of San Miguel. Now Wainwright has to make a last line of defense ranging from Fort Stoltenberg to Sibyl Springs. Once the Japanese get past this last line of defense, San Fernando will be open to attack where countless people are still fleeing. The 7th Tank Regiment approaches Gapan, a short distance away from the last line of American defenses. By the 31st, the 7th Tank Regiment breaks through that last line of defense and now is in the vicinity of the town of Balang, which stands just between them at the Plaridel. At the same time, other IGA forces are pushing past the broken last line of defense that Wainwright had made, and now they're pushing towards San Fernando. Wainwright is going to be forced to make a stand at San Fernando or risk the Japanese closing off Bataan to the remaining fleeing forces. The Southern Luzon force of General Jones reached the Calumpit Steel Bridges. And while his forces crossed over the two bridges, he sent two tank platoons to engage the Japanese tanks at Belag in an effort to give enough time for the other defenders to pull out. The US tanks were able to take out over seven Japanese tanks without taking a single casualty, and they successfully delayed their advance. Now at this moment, if the Japanese air forces hit any of these key bridges, many defenders would be completely trapped. On January the 1st, the IGA 48th Division, who were at the front lines of the advance, knew this and appealed to the Japanese air commanders to hit the bridges, but they were rejected. It seems perhaps the air commanders knew that the majority of the fleeing forces had already got over the bridges by that point. On the same day, the southern Luzon force, having got all their forces over the bridges, blew them up behind them, thus escaping what could have been the entrapment of their entire force. On January the 2nd, Japanese troops entered Manila unopposed. Storefronts were boarded up, gangs of native looters were taking advantage of the situation, as crowds of civilians simply stood by and watched in horror and silence. At the house of the American High Commissioner, the Japanese lowered the American flag, and a Japanese sailor ground his feet into it. The rising sun was raised in its place as the band played Kimigayo. General Homa had the mistaken belief that when his forces should occupy Manila, well, the Battle of the Philippines must be won and done. He was slow to realize that his prize lay hunkering down in Bataan. As time went on, Homa would realize that the day had not exactly been won just yet. Thus, after taking Manila, Homa now faces a rather alarming situation. Japanese High Command ordered Homa's best soldiers, the 48th Division, to leave the Philippines to help invade Java but Homa felt he required them for mop-up operations.
the 48th Division had been ordered on December the 30th to press forward and seal off Batan from anyone still trying to flee into it. Between January the 2nd to the 4th, the American forces were still scrambling to open up a road from San Fernando to Dinalupahan, which lay at the neck of the peninsula, where the southern Luzon force was pushing through to get into Batan. It took an incredible effort for the Americans to keep this small road open to allow the southern Luzon force to finally make it into Bataan. So after all of that, the 48th Division had reached the first defensive lines in front of Bataan. It's at this point, Homa asked to keep the division for one more month, but was refused. Thus, the crack troops of the 48th Division were replaced by the 65th Summer Brigade from Formosa. These guys were an occupational force of 7,700 composed mostly of older men who were unprepared and unequipped for frontline duty, i.e. this is what you call a occupational force or a garrison force. Basically the idea is these aren't the kind of guys that you throw into the front lines, these are the kind of guys you literally garrison areas you've already taken. Their commander, Lieutenant General Akira Nara was not expecting the circumstances that he was about to be put in, to say the least. On the night of January the 5th, Nara led his troops towards the front on foot behind him, stretching halfway back to the Lingian Gulf. His weary men struggled after crossing over 184 destroyed bridges. They approached a batan crammed with 15,000 Americans and 65,000 Filipino troops. The defenders' field ration situation was a catastrophe. From January the 5th, MacArthur put his troops on half rations, but in practice, they received much less. MacArthur's blunder of Warplan Orange 3 resulted in logistical failures to get enough supplies into Bataan. This left his men to subsist on just 1,000 to 1,500 calories per day. By the end of January, meat and fish would dwindle to 11 days worth, flour 6 days, and vegetables only 4. Over 50 million bushels of rice stored in central Luzon was not moved in time to Bataan because of the disastrous withdrawal conditions. It is estimated that that rice alone could have sustained MacArthur's entire force and the civilians for 4 years if need be. Wainwright would confide in Major Trap Trapnell of the 26th Cavalry, quote, I don't worry about the Japs, I worry about the Chows. End of quote. A lot of people never really consider the logistics of war. Now, if you think this is all a minor issue, please note, because of the lack of nutrition, the U.S. troops' resistance to disease collapsed by about 80%, and a lot of them are going to succumb to malaria and other tropical diseases. It actually makes me recall, when I was taking one of my first courses on the Pacific War, my professor tried to explain to the class that when you actually look at some of the things that allowed U.S. forces to defeat the Japanese on, let's say, the islands, one of the most important parts of that was actually the lack of food for the Japanese. And it's not that they were literally starving to death. They were, <laughs> to be honest. It was also the association of lack of nutrition and their succumb into certain diseases like we just mentioned, malaria or beriberi, which is particular when you're only eating rice. Let you in on a little secret. On my own uh, YouTube channel, the Pacific War Channel, I was going to dedicate an entire episode in the future just to the issue of food on the islands for the Japanese because it is actually much more interesting than just the starvation aspect or, like I just mentioned, falling into uh, malaria or beriberi. There's an entire other issue that is completely disregarded by most, uh, most books you read on the Pacific War. And it's this, as a result of not having any adequate food when they get to the islands, the Japanese were forced to forage most of the time. And these are soldiers, they have active duty and they have all sorts of things they have to do. But they would be spending a majority of their time trying to like dig up sweet potatoes and stuff. And on top of that, no one ever considers this. These Japanese are literally hauling 
large bags of rice on their backs. They don't have MRE rations like the United States does. And whenever they want to eat, especially at night, they have to light a fire to actually cook the rice. And this made them vulnerable to any sniper attacks. And this is actually a really large issue that you don't hear much about. Anyways, like I was saying before, no one really pays attention to the logistics of war. They're very important. So alongside the issue of disease was another problem, and that of resentment. MacArthur ordered larger rations to be given to the American troops on Bataan, and this did not sit well with the Filipinos. One Antonio Aquino, the son of a sugar baron named Benigno Aquino, risked his life in shark-infested water to swim an entire mile and a half from Bataan to Corregidor to warn President Quezon of an increasing rift between the American and Filipino forces. When he got there, he said, quote, We feel we should have the same rations as the Americans. End of quote. Antonio also stated it was not just a rift between American forces and the Filipinos, but also between the interforces amongst the Americans. MacArthur had ordered his chief of staff, General Sutherland, to remove the 4th Marines from the General Recommendations for Presidential Unit Citation Awards, stating, quote, The Marines had enough glory in World War I. End of quote. MacArthur's forces dug in behind the Abake-Mauban line, which cut across the northern end of the peninsula and across the flank of an extinct volcano known as Mount Natib. MacArthur was receiving clear signals from Washington that he should not expect much in any way of any timely aid, but he would later tell his troops on January the 15th, quote, Help is on the way from the United States. Thousands of troops and hundreds of planes are being dispatched. No further retreat is possible. We have more troops in Bataan than the Japanese have thrown against us. Our supplies are ample. A determined defense will defeat the enemy's attack. I call upon every soldier in Bataan to fight in his assigned position resisting every attack. This is the only road to salvation. If we fight, we will win. If we retreat, we will be destroyed. End of quote. MacArthur was supposed to be able to hold out for around six months, given Warplan Orange 3's supplies estimates. He had enough supplies with him for around 30 days. Now we need to shift over to Malaya, which we haven't been to in quite a while. So way back when, we had mentioned before how the Battle of Chitra had revealed the folly of using an undermanned army to try and defend Malaya in its entirety. A lower line of defense, perhaps around Johor, would have shortened the British lines of supply and extended those for the Japanese, which they could have exploited. As December was coming to a close, the Japanese began to occupy more of northern Malaya, and then began to move south. The defenders continuously tried to establish lines of defense, but could not hold them. The Japanese were armed with tanks and stolen bicycles, which allowed them to use blitzkrieg-like tactics against the British and Indian defenders. On Christmas Eve, Murray Leon was sacked as commander of the 11th Indian Division. He was something of a casualty because he prepared for Operation Matador, which was the cancelled preemptive strike into Thailand, and this came at the expense of making proper defenses at Jitra or Gurren. He would later on return to India and shortly after retire from service. You know, in my opinion, out of all the commanders making blunders during the Malayan campaign, because, I mean, my god, this campaign really went bad for the Allies. His was quite tragic, and not completely his fault. At the ripe age of 51, 
This experienced soldier of misfortune would become a civilian in the middle of his country's most desperate war. He was replaced with Brigadier Archibald Paris, a man of the same age but whom held no more experience than Murray did in bush warfare. Paris commanded the 12th Indian Infantry Division and managed to protect the retreat of Murray's 11th Indian Division successfully and to the surprise of the Japanese inflicted high casualties upon them. By December the 26th, the Japanese 5th Division and the 4th Guards Regiment crossed the Perak River and began preparations for a general offensive against Kampar. Kampar was a key point for the defense of central Malaya as it could not be so easily outflanked inland. Kampar was halfway between Penang and Kuala Lumpur, with terrain unsuitable for Japanese tanks, making it an ideal place for defending. Paris prepared to make a stand with infantry battalions that in some cases were stitched together by survivors of Jitra and Gurren. Amongst the group were a British battalion of Semlestas and East Suris, a Jat and Punjab battalion, with some Sikhs as well. The 12th Brigade was tasked with digging trenches hastily, wiring them up and clearing fields around the ridges of Kampar to easily spot the incoming enemy. After three weeks of perpetual fighting and retreating, the morale of the defenders had all but collapsed. As Colonel Alfred Harrison of the 11th Indian Division observed on Christmas Day, quote, Fatigue had stretched the men's mind to the limit, and moral ascendancy which the Japanese had achieved in these few weeks included a psychic side. The troops were beginning to attribute almost supernatural powers to the Japanese. End of quote. By contrast, the well-trained and battle-hardened Japanese veterans were so used to victory now that they went into battles simply believing they would win. The knowledge Yamashita had acquired in Germany allowed him to utilize aircraft as a form of mobile artillery when the jungle terrain made the sitting and use of ground artillery too difficult. This use of mobile artillery was devastating. Most engagements would start off with a bombing attack on allied roadblocks, which were quickly followed up with frontal attacks until a front line was established. Then the Japanese would search for an opportunity to flank through the jungles and envelop the defenders. Yamashita was basically pulling off very elaborate blitzkrieg tactics within a jungle setting, and to an amazing effect. When the attack came, it came from the west coast roads. Japanese tanks hit the 12th Brigade along a three-mile stretch of country-style road south of a tin mining town called Gopeng. When the tanks arrived, small arms and heavy machine gun fire sprayed from both sides of the roads. Behind the tanks roared trucks carrying Japanese infantry, which disembarked and fanned out from the roads into the brush of the jungle. The Japanese machine gun fire was coming out of the jungles with occasional shells being launched by the tank's 37mm cannons, snapping rubber trees apart. The defenders tried desperately to take potshots at the tanks utilizing boys' anti-tank rifles. I believe I described these in a previous episode. But just to refresh your memory, these are British anti-tank rifles, also nicknamed elephant guns and they shoot a .55 inch round. It's really big. <laughs> Initially, the defenders were paralyzed by the sight of Japanese tanks, but it quickly wore off and soon they began firing hell upon the Japanese infantry. Some of the tanks advanced alone onto the bridge near the small local hamlet of Dipang. There, they were met by some defenders with Lanchester sub-machine guns and Bren gun carriers filled with anti-tank rifles. Lieutenant Colonel Ian Stewart noted, The anti-tank rifle made no impression against the Jap mediums, while their 37mm guns went through our armor like paper. End of quote. 
Despite the fact the British really had no effective answer to the tanks, the Japanese tanks assumed anything coming at them would have something to take them down, so they were cautiously approaching. As a result of their caution, those guys in the tanks would close their hatches, which made it feel like, quote, a Turkish bathhouse. Try to imagine subtropical settings within a small tank. Air-conditioned fighting vehicles were a daydream, to say the least. The defenders shot with their Lanchesters, desperately aiming for the vision slits in the tanks, but were met with a ton of ricocheting bullets. Eventually, a two-pounder anti-tank gun was able to knock out a single tank, forcing the Japanese armor to withdraw a little ways back to allow their infantry to catch up. 200 defenders were on the other side of the bridge when an order was given to the sappers to destroy it. Fortunately for them, at Kampar, the water was quite shallow and most were able to wad across the mile downstream from where the bridge was. Stuart, commanding the 12th Brigade, had bought some time for the defenses at Kampar to be built up. The observation posts at Kampar Hill made for excellent artillery spotting. Artillery was the one arm where the British, who virtually had no naval or air support, were better off than the Japanese. For most of the war in Malaya, the Japanese chose to keep the defenders at a knife's edge, clinging very closely to them, which made artillery more difficult to use for the defenders. At many points, the defenders would make withdrawals, trying to open up more space for their artillery bombardments, only to have the Japanese quickly moving on their heels. Kampar, however, had sweeping fields that you could fire upon, giving more ample space. The defenders' line at Kampar looked something like a goose egg on a map, with an all-around defense perimeter straddling Kampar Hill. The defenders' artillery was well hidden in some greenery, with 200 rounds neatly piled right beside each gun. The 15th and 6th brigades held the low ground, where the road and the railway ran alongside the hill, and through the town itself. Major General Saburo Karamura spearheaded the attack on Kampar with his 9th brigade. On December the 31st, he launched a probe attack against the 28th Gurkha Brigade, who were dug in on some hill shrub. Eventually, the Japanese figured out where the Gurkhas were hiding in the shrub, and then they began to hit them with their howitzers. However, by doing so, they also gave away the locations of themselves, and the defenders began to bombard them with artillery fire. The artillery proved to be extremely successful, and it beat off the Japanese advances. At midnight on New Year's Eve, Lieutenant Colonel Augustus Murdoch, commanding the 155th Field Regiment, ordered a 12-gun salute to be fired at the Japanese. I guess he was trying to be cheeky. Around seven hours later, Kawamura launched his main attack against the western side of Kampor Hill, straight down the trunk road. The brunt of this attack came down on the newly formed British battalion, the Lestas in East Suris, who had struggled to escape the Battle of Jitra and Gurren. They were exhausted from running through mosquito-plagued nights in the jungle swamps and paddy fields. Many were suffering from malaria at this point. They were around 600 strong, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Esmond Morrison, a man of 48 with a World War I military cross amongst his many metal ribbons. When the war began, he showed himself to be a very serious soldier, despite many referring to him as a, quote, polo-playing playboy. As the commander, Morrison had a habit of sharing the dangers at the sharp end and on many occasions picking up a rifle and bayonet while clearing roadblocks. The Japanese infantry came out of the mist, carrying 4-inch motors behind them. The Japanese began to motor fire, and one of the early casualties was a company commander who had been evacuated as motor splinter shattered his jaw. Despite the heavy motor fire, the observation officers of the 88th field were able to pinpoint Japanese advances and artillery fired 25-pound shells upon them. 
Our old friend Colonel Matsunobu Tsuiji wrote of this event, quote, There was a continuous stream of casualties coming back down the hill to safety, either carried on stretchers or supported on the shoulders of their comrades, who they themselves were wounded. End of quote. The Japanese tried to locate the artillery, but they were being towed away by vehicles to conceal their locations on the hill's secondary jungle. During the battle, one of Morrison's lieutenants was walking alone in a trench shortly before the main attack of the day was to commence, when he suddenly heard movement and came face to face with the Japanese. He quickly emptied his revolver at them and fled into a nearby platoon. The Japanese had a tenacious habit of sneaking, particularly at night behind enemy lines. Another man, a driver from a gunnery regiment on the hill, was out delivering rations when he saw a nearby Bren gun position had just been overrun with Japanese. Instead of tiptoeing away to get help, the driver, named Walker, emerged out of his vehicle with a Thompson submachine gun, and one man surprise attacked them, driving them away. He was immediately awarded a medal for this. A troop sergeant major named Hugill, in an outlying observation post connected by a field telephone to the main one, was awarded a Distinguished Conduct Medal for the way he coolly continued to call in fire to create a firewall around him after he was cut off. After the attack had subsided, he made his way back to the main observation post when he stumbled into some Japanese who were as isolated as he was. They had just captured a Vickers Berthier machine gun and Hugill responded by collecting five other infantrymen, and he led a bayonet charge against them, recapturing the position. An emergency commissioned officer, Lieutenant Edgar Newland, was commanding a platoon of 30 Lesters in one of the most forward positions of the defensive lines, while attacks and counterattacks went back and forth. His platoon was cut off and surrounded for most of the battle. But Newland and his men fought off numerous attacks and kept hold of their isolated position for two straight days. Percival singled out Newland and his 30 men for special praise for the crucial role that they played in holding Kampar. Newland received a military cross and his regular platoon sergeant, Uan MacDonald, received a Distinguished Conduct Medal. It's moments like these where forces clash in extremely heated combat where you see such heroism and bravery. A lot of the time, you learn about the battles. The actions of individuals are often left out, and there are plenty more to talk about. But I just wanted to highlight a handful to give you a feeling of this bloody battle. Eventually, after two days, the Japanese succeeded in seizing part of the eastern sector of a position known as Thompson's Ridge. Some failed attempts to recapture it were made by a British battalion and a Jat Punjab battalion. Morrison felt the British defenders needed a rest before mounting another counterattack upon it. So he sent two platoons made up of Sikhs and Gujars who bayonet charged Thompson Hill under motor fire. 34 of them died, and their commander, a 21-year-old named Charles Lamb, died in the first charge in. The second commander, Captain John Graham was hit by a grenade which blew his legs off below the knee. Despite having his legs blown off, he continued to shout at his men and was even seen to throw a grenade at the Japanese trenches. Graham would bleed to death, living long enough to know that they did retake the position. However, it would turn out courage, artillery, and excellent terrain were not enough to hold Kempar. Yamashita decided to outflank Percival by hooking around Kampar with a series of seaborne landings on the Malayan western coast. He took 40 small crafts, the same ones he used in the landings at Singora and Patani, and he transported them by rail to Alar Star. Tsuji objected to Yamashita's idea, stating that using the crafts would risk them, and they were needed to assault Singapore later. Despite the objections, Yamashita ordered landings to be made near the port of Telak Ansan, which lay about 30 miles southeast of Kampar. If Yamashita's men could get behind Paris's 11th Indian Division that were bitterly defending Kampar, 
they would be completely cut off. Thus, Yamashita planned a three-prong attack, one using a fresh Imperial Guard division who had just arrived from Thailand. They would go into the Perak River and paddle downstream straight into the town. Another would arrive from the west on landing crafts and enter the river from the other direction to hit the town. The third prong would go into the river Burnam, land some 15 miles from Perak, and march north on Telekansan. Lieutenant General of the Japanese 5th Division, Takuro Matsue, would command the landings. While the British continued to hold the line at Kampar, 1,500 of Matsue's men crammed into landing crafts sailed down the coast looking at their maps and trying to figure out whether the various gaps in the mangrove hedges were where they were supposed to go or not. One steamer with 10 landing crafts in tow went too far south and tried to enter the mouth of the Selangor River, which was being defended by a Jat battalion supported by artillery. The Japanese were beaten off and lost up to three landing crafts before they went further north. In Perak, Matsui's worst nightmare would come true, when the Japanese came to a natural obstacle. Four landing crafts ran aground on a sandbar at the mouth of the river, and they needed to be rescued now. To make things worse, a British patrol boat had seen them and left to report it, leaving the Japanese as sitting ducks. Nothing happened, however, as Percival later remarked. Unfortunately, neither the Navy nor the Air Force were able to take advantage of this unique opportunity. Despite the holdback, the Japanese were able to land and march on Telekansan. There, they ran into the 3rd Indian Cavalry and the 1st Independent Company on January the 2nd. Stuart had armed them with armored cars and extra Thompsons and Bren guns, and they hit the Japanese forces in the narrow streets of Telekansan. They inflicted heavy casualties, yet with only 250 men, they could not hope to hold back the enemy. Stewart eventually ordered them to perform delaying actions rather than try to hold on to the town. Thus, the defenders began to delay the Japanese from taking the main north-south road, but Teluk Anson had fallen. Now all the defenders at Kampar were endangered of being encircled and completely annihilated. Despite four solid days of bitter fighting at Kampar, Kawamura's forces were showing no signs of breaking through. Despite this, Paris was haunted by the fear that his main supply route to Kampar would be severed, and he asked permission from Percival to withdraw to the next defensive line behind the Slim River. As far as Paris was concerned, his objective was to preserve troops and not territory, so that when the reinforcements arrived to Malaya, he would have enough men to counterattack. As he would say, With no reserves in hand, we were still in a position of being unable to accept major losses. Thus, it was up to the 12th Brigade to keep the door tightly closed while Paris got the rest of the division away to safety. Now, at this point, there's actually kind of a little bizarre side story going on. While performing delaying actions with the 12th Brigade, one brigadier named Stuart found a dead European cyclist who was wearing, quote, khaki shorts, a gray uniform shirt, and a forage cap. Early on in the campaign, a Punjab sentry on a frontline river bridge had also shot a man whose clothes and manner suggested he might be British until that man tried to snatch the Punjab's Thompson from him. There was little doubt that the cyclist with the gray shirt and forage cap, or the man on the bridge, were German. Shortly before hostilities started, the British legation in Bangkok warned that deserters from the French Foreign Legion's 5th Regiment in Vichy, Indochina, were in town and in touch with the Nazi embassy. Presumably, they were offering their Japanese allies assistance such as sabotage work and spy work. 
Percival was impressed by the report of a German who tried to single-handedly disarm a sentry and seize an entire bridge by himself. As the 12th Brigade continued their delaying action, they found another body of a European who was accompanying Japanese troops. Local police identified the corpse to be that of a German political refugee, a former mining engineer in a local district who had disappeared weeks before. So yeah, go figure, until now, I had never heard of such instances until I began reading one of the main sources for this very episode, a book called Singapore Burning, Heroism and Surrender in World War II by Colin Smith. Dog-tired after three weeks of almost continuous fighting and with minimal sleep, the 12th Brigade kept on performing delaying actions. The Japanese air forces wrecked havoc on vehicles and anyone moving along the roads in daylight. Stewart estimated that around half the casualties amongst his 12th Brigade were from aerial attacks along roads, around 90 killed and wounded. But 90 casualties of at least 4,000 men was extremely light, and Stewart was pleased by the way things had gone. He recounted, It had been ineptly a successful battle. Yet it was not exactly a battle per se, more of a series of short skirmishes. They delayed and inflicted casualties where it was possible, but were on the run more often than not. Ultimately, Kampar had fallen when Talak Anson was taken. Percival could have sent some Australian brigades in Johor, or perhaps a few idle garrison battalions from Singapore, who were itching to fight but to concentrate forces at Kampar might push Yamashita to simply strike elsewhere. The forces at Kampar, under the protection of the 12th Brigade, pulled back a good 30 miles to what is called the Slim River. Colonel Tsuji was loath to admit it, but Yamashita's breakthrough at Kampar was masterful, though quite a gamble. Over on the east coast, the defenders were not being allowed to escape so easily. Percival was still clinging onto an airfield at Kwantan. He did not want the Japanese to have any of the RAF airfields on the peninsula for as long as possible. This was not so that the British could use them again. They did not even have any aircraft really left. It was simply to reduce the enemy's capability at performing airstrikes against Allied ships carrying reinforcements to Singapore. One of the first of these convoys of reinforcements was about 24 hours sailing time away. It was coming from Bombay, and its Indian forces were supposed to be going to Iraq to finish their training. They were half-trained and unblooded. The 45th under Brigadier Horatio Duncan. Kwantan is around halfway between Kota Baharu and Singapore, and they were facing the 18th Division's Takumi Detachment. To defend Kwantan was the 22nd Indian Brigade, led by Brigadier George Painter. His forces had wired and dug trenches all around the airfield. Takumi's forces crossed a river and approached the airfield, but Painter had ordered quite a few men to withdraw further west and set up roadblocks and ambushes. One battalion was left at the airfield, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Cumming, who had seen some action in Kotabahu's landings. The Japanese were met with the rain of 4.5-inch howitzers, inflicting some really nasty casualties upon them. Cumming's men ran amok firing upon the struggling Japanese trying to get past the wired obstacles and trenches, and each man defending was carrying six grenades rather than two, making it a absolute nightmare. Colonel Tsuji wrote that the airfield was, quote, obstinately defended. This was because of the amount of grenades thrown at the Japanese during the nighttime, which proved to be very effective to thwart Japanese night raids, which they love to do. A defender noted many of the men would simply roll two grenades in close confinements of the trenches where several enemy would be hiding, to horrifying results. 
News spread to Cummings' men that the entire 9th Indian Division of General Barstow was withdrawing through the Kuala Lipis Jarantut Rab area. This meant that the 22nd needed to immediately proceed to demolish all buildings and installations in Kuantan and make for their own retreat. But at night, their rearguard would be caught in the midst of a Japanese attack. Cummings was investigating his southern flank one night, joined by Captain Ian Grimwood, when they both saw the silhouettes of Japanese soldiers trying to climb some barbed wire just meters from their position. Both men were armed with the world's largest caliber service revolver at the time, the 1894.455 Webley. Since the mid-1930s, the British Army had been phasing it out, and most were delighted to use .38 revolvers instead. But amongst Cummings' generation, who had been born in Karachi in 1896, and followed his father into the Indian Army, well, he swore by the stopping power of the larger bullets. Thus Cummings and Ian took few seconds to realize what was happening when seven Japanese men charged them with bayonets. Both men began to fire upon them as they were knocked to the ground. The Japanese men were all shot dead, with large gashing holes right through them. Cummings was stunned by two bayonet wounds in his stomach. Ian Grimwood staggered to his feet, reloaded his revolver, and grabbed Cummings, bringing him to the battalion HQ, where he was field-dressed for his wounds. The Japanese at this point were beginning to overrun the airfield's defense and Cummings knew he had to get his battalion out before their escape route was blocked. As Cummings sent word for his men to begin withdrawing, he was hit by a grenade or a motor round, knocking him out. As he began to regain consciousness, Cummings found himself in the back of a vehicle, and the driver, Private Abel Singh, told him that there was a Japanese roadblock in their way. Cummings then looked at the road and saw a felled tree leaning at an angle from the bank, which was just enough room for the vehicle to possibly squeeze under, so he ordered Singh to charge right through it. As Singh pounded the gas, machine gun bullets sprayed all over the vehicle. Cummings was hit again, with his arm being shattered, possibly by an anti-personal mine, if not the machine gun fire. Abel Singh was hit by a .256 armor-piercing bullet right through both of his thighs, but somehow he kept control and through the machine gun fire drove another 30 miles per hour further on. As the vehicle pulled up to a friendly platoon, it was covered in blood of its six occupants. It looked like a real horror show. Abel Singh was taken safely out of the driver's seat and Ian Grimwood would drive them to the new Brigade HQ. By the time that they got there, Cummings was in and out of consciousness, but alive, and he would receive the Victoria Cross for his heroism at Guantan. Hell of a goddamn soldier to say the least. George Painter was ordered to hold Guantan airfield long enough to allow the convoy of reinforcements to land. Yet holding the airfield for as long as they did cost them a lot of men from one of the best Indian battalions in all of Malaya. Unfortunately, Painter, like most British commanders in the field, was obsessed with the idea that the Japanese would outflank them at any moment. His thinking was that, quote, It was better to lose half a battalion than an entire brigade. The 22nd Indian Brigade had lost a third of its strength, but the rest managed to retreat by January the 3rd. As all of this was happening in the east, in the west, Yamashita's forces continued their advance to catch the fleeing British defenders as they ran southwards. The defenders were preparing a new line of defense at Trolak, five miles north of the Slim River. And at the same time reinforcements had landed, the 45th Brigade were immediately sent to repel the enemy's advance on Kuala Selangor which held another valuable airfield. Would the defenders be able to hold back Yamashita? Only time will tell. 
I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and after all that, if you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go check my personal channel out at the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. Next week, we're going to be jumping right back into the action in the China War a bit more into Dutch-held Borneo, and in the Philippines where Douglas MacArthur's men were finally digging in at Patan. Oh, and the action in Malaya? Well, the Tigers' winning streak is not over, and not by a long shot, because next time, we're going to speak about one of the largest blunders in British military history. So please join us next time for the Battle of Slim River.